So, um, I am this morning going to be talking about uh, something different than the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We are coming to the end of the recalibration of our faith in Christ. So, just, and then I'm, I'm going to do kind of a capstone on this in a, either next week or the week after. But, so we've studied for weeks now uh, the, the idea of repentance as being necessary for recalibrating our faith. The importance of guarding our heart from those things that would impact our heart, that would corrupt our heart. Um, and that was months ago that we talked about that. And then we spent a lot of time on constancy, being constant in our attention, in our relationship with Christ, being focused, and all of those things that are necessary in order to have that constancy in our life. And so as a part of constancy then, We've talked about the constancy in our purpose, the constancy in terms of the fruit, the spirit, and, and exercising the fruits of the spirit, the constancy in knowing what and exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit as he has given them to us. And today I'm going to be talking about the biblical virtues. Um, and then maybe next week we'll see and we'll be talking about the spiritual disciplines. But in any case, um, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to begin with verse 8. I'm going to read, read verses 8 through 9 of Philippians chapter 4. And so kind of like the subtitle of what it is I'll be talking about with you this morning is having a recalibrated life means living a life of virtue. If you're bored, if you're disenchanted, if you're wondering why, um, you know, your faith doesn't mean as much to you, maybe as it should or as it did, then I would argue that one of the reasons why that might be the case is because we are not practicing the biblical virtues. And those virtues are life-giving. They are life-giving. So, Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so when he says the word think, he means to dwell Dwell on these things. Live in and on these things. Meditate. Deliberate. And ponder these virtues in your life, in our lives, as he's just discovered, just to describe them. So that word think is an important word here in that text. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so, importantly, the word practice means to make a habit, to bring to completion, to make these things a habit, to bring them to completion in our life. And, of course, the word peace in the Greek is the word irene, 
And uh, Irene is a very powerful word. Uh, it means much more than just the cessation of violence. It means wholeness, well-being, uh, all of those kinds of things, rich, flourishing. Um, and the equivalent of that in the Old Testament is shalom. So there's a lot going on in this text, and, um, and I want to spend some time on it because it seems to me, follow me on this, if the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are significant enough to be printed and posted in prominent places of our home and office, then the list of virtues cited by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 ought to be included as well. They are that significant. So if you're like me, if you were to come to my home, uh, and I'm not, I'm just saying what I do. I'm not saying that I don't do it. I do it as well as I should. I'm just saying what I do, okay? So on the wall before you walk out the door, in my breezeway from the kitchen, there's a, there's the, the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit list right there. In my study downstairs on my door, as you walk through the door, there's a list of the fruit of the Spirits there as well. If you were to get online and Google the fruit of the Spirit or the, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and you were to Google Google images, you would see all kinds of posters and banners and all those things. That, so these things are ubiquitous. They are all over the place. They are so important that people actually create and then sell, and many people purchase these to put them in prominent places in their home. And I would say this list of virtues should be held up to be just as important as the fruit of the Spirit and as the gifts of the Spirit. Just as important. So... Um, and so I want to, before I get into the text itself, I want, to I want to define for you what a virtue is. A virtue is an exceptional behavior and attitudinal values and practices that enable one to live an exceptionally good and productive life for themselves as well as for others. It's exceptional. This is an exceptional behavior. It's an exceptional value. It's exceptional in terms of how you practice them. And it lifts you up over and above what you really are now, and maybe over and above what you see going on in the world around you. Here are some key elements to virtue. And so I, I'm, I'm spending time on virtue because what I'm saying to you is, when you read this in Philippians 4, it's... Um, it's very different. In other words, um, there are some biblical exegetes when they read Philippians 4, they're like, wow, well, now this is different. Why would the Apostle Paul go out and get eight well-known Greek philosophical virtues and include them in this letter to Christians? Why would he grab those virtues those listed virtues that were well known among Greek philosophers and within uh, Greek teaching, why would he do that and then include them in this? And so when you read this, it reads differently 
than what you might read. So, for example, in Judaism, the highest virtue would be not just to obey the law. The highest virtue would would be to, to be holy, separate from the world. By extension, that is largely true among Christians because to be separate from the world means Christ-likeness. So, uh, but these virtues that Paul is talking about imply, they, they are embedded in the, Jew, in, the, in the Jewish idea of what virtue is. They are embedded in the idea of what Christian virtue is. So, here are some examples some elements of virtue. Conformity to a standard of right. Conformity to a standard of right, of right morality. Now, could any of you tell me, like, within the culture in which we live, what, what right kind of morality everybody would agree on? Is there like, can you name for me one thing that everybody would say is, has to be true for everybody at all times and in all places? Uh, do not kill. Uh, well, I don't know if that's a virtue that we're all going to die. Uh, do not kill. No, there would be some people say it's virtuous to kill. Maybe not virtuous to murder, but virtuous to kill. Um, yeah, and, and, and so what does, that, what does that mean? So if I, for example, am I stealing if I, if I charge more for a product than what it's really worth? What's that? Yeah, some people would say yes. So you see what I'm saying? There's a relativeness to all of this, right? All right, number two, a particular moral excellence would be virtuous. So people who take the high road, morally speaking, they would be considered to be virtuous. A beneficial quality or power of a thing. In other words, the ability um, to um, something that has an, an exceptional ability to do good would be considered to be a virtuous thing. Strength or courage, valor, somebody who has courage to stand up against uh, a bully or someone, uh, or to, to, to stand up sacrificially where you pay a price in order that, that whatever that evil is is suppressed and other people are saved from it. That would be considered to be virtuous, that kind of courage. A commendable quality or trait, something that, you know, that we see in a person that we say is highly commendable, that we really appreciate that particular thing. So whether it's the integrity they have, how they do business, um, how they commit themselves to excellence, um, how they are caring about other people around them always, um, those kinds of things would be. So, for example, when I do funerals, um, I can't always say to the surviving spouse, you honored your vows. Can't always say that. I want to be able to always say that, but I can't always say that. Because uh, the surviving spouse didn't, may not have cared for their spouse as they should have, or may not have just been a good spouse. And so 
Um, but, but we all know those spouses. Like, so for example, my mother-in-law, I mean, she took care of my father-in-law until she absolutely could not take care of him a day longer. I mean, how she lived her life sacrificially to honor her vow of in sickness and in health was inspiring. I mean, we, we almost had to beg her not to, you know, we, he just was too much for her. And she still afterwards wondered if she did everything she should have done. So that was virtuous. A capacity to act or potency. In other words, there are certain people who have the ability to do something to really make a difference. They have the power to do that. And when they do and make that difference, it's virtuous. When a person has the power to act to make a difference in another person's life and they choose not to do that, that is not virtuous. That's a vice. Now, because all truth is God's truth, the Apostle Paul was tapping into well-known Greek virtues in Philippians 4, 8-9 to convey the truth that godly virtue is the pathway to joy and peace. So godly virtue is what helps to recalibrate our lives when we practice these things. I think that when we commit ourselves to virtuous living, there is a cleansing that takes place in our lives. It's a cleansing. We leave behind those vices that pull us down, whether it's bitterness or unforgiveness or hatefulness or lust or any of those kinds of things, those things impact our lives, that impact our lives in that way. When we choose to lay those things aside, those vices, self-serving nature, all of those kinds of things. I was reading online the other day and it was on my little philosophical uh, thing uh, where somebody posted, I can't remember what the meme was, but a response to the meme was, I can see now that self-love is the highest love that there is. Now, I'm just saying to you that most of the classical philosophers would be spinning in their graves if they, if they read that that thing that that person wrote. Self-love is not the highest love that there is. But how do people become so deluded in that way? Well, it's because they don't really know and understand what virtue is. So let's read this again, and then I'm going to make some more comments about this particular text. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I'd like you to overlay these virtues over what you see taking place in pop culture today. Overlay these words over what you see happening in pop culture today. And, and ask me if it fits. 
Does it fit in any way? It does not fit in any way. So, for example, and, and you know, I was listening to, and I don't listen to him a lot, but sometimes a stop clock is even right twice a day, right? So, Bill Maher. And I, I was stunned to hear him say how uh, Generation Z is all about, um, and he said, and they get this from pop culture, he said, but they, it's all about um, wanting the best of this and the most of that and known for how much money and what possessions they have and all of those kinds of things. I mean, really, it was quite the diatribe that he had. And... Um, and, and so as, I, as I'm listening to him, it reminded me of, of this critique of how important that virtue really is. How many, of you, do you, do, how many of you ever bought the book, The Book of Virtues? Any of you ever get that book? We, we have it. So it's a wonderful book. Um, you, you know, for example, that for a lot of years in Western civilization, teaching virtue was a, part, a regular part of the curriculum. Honesty, goodness, rightness, justice, um, all those kinds of things. Were, but they are no longer a part of our curriculum. Our children are not being taught what virtue is, what goodness is, what excellence is. So in any case, um, so they come up with things like, well, I have to live my own truth. Well, what happens if I live my own truth and it runs counter to your own truth? I mean, do you really think that you can reconcile uh, 8.1 billion people who all want to live their own truth? How does that work? Because what if my own truth is in opposition to your own truth? Do you think that there are a number of possibilities there out of 8.1 billion people who live on the planet? You see, these, these kinds of vices... The way in which people think today run counter to good living, to happy living, to joyful living. And I'm, I suspect that there was a lot of that going on in Paul's day as it is going on in our life now. So let me give you a little bit of background and tell you what I think is going on here because it's unique that Paul would include these is unique. And he, he in part included it because all truth is God's truth. No matter where that truth is on the planet, no matter what culture it's in, no matter what religion it belongs to, if it's a truth, capital T, it belongs to God. And so the Apostle Paul, seeing this virtue, these virtues, included them in his text. But here are some other things that are going on. And I found this to be interesting. So I have on my desk at home about six different study Bibles that I consult when I do my, my message prep. And I fully expected. Now, if any of you have one of these, you know that it is, you're standing on the shoulders of giants with this kind of a biblical text. So when I, when I picked them up, I fully expected to read a lot about Ephesians 4, 8, maybe verse 9. In most of my study Bibles, there was hardly anything about Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 8. 
Hardly anything. I would have thought that that would have been kind of like an, an expansive discussion, you know? The only time that there was expansive discussion was those two Bibles that I had that talk a lot about culture. And so that's when they began to talk about how Paul included in this text these Greek virtues. And so, so it was thin. It was thin in this Bible, and it was thin in uh, my MacArthur Study Bible, which is like, uh, uh, like uh, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, his, when you read a MacArthur Study Bible, you can have this much biblical text and this much discussion. And so there wasn't a whole lot, but there were some, but there wasn't a whole lot. I was surprised. So this is a, a list of standard virtues for a Greek audience that Paul was addressing. Because remember, he was writing to Christians in Philippi. Philippi was a Greek city. So he was writing to Greek Christians and Greek people in the city of Philippi. These virtues are not of Christian or Jewish origin specifically, but are well-known and taught by Greek philosophers. More importantly, this is a list of virtues universally understood globally. You could go anywhere in the world and get to these same kinds of virtues, and you would find them in almost all religions in some way throughout the course of the world. They are ubiquitous in that way. They are everywhere. Which led me to believe that it seems to me that this is related to Romans verses 18 through 20, where he says, even the heathen are without excuse for the very nature cries out of the glory of God, and that God has written his law, God has written his law on the hearts and minds in the, in the, in the created order in which we live. And so people were able to get a grasp of what God requires and articulate it in the form of these kinds of virtues globally throughout the world. Interesting, this uh, Greek word, erete, um, means excellence. And the idea of excellence is at the very core of Greek virtue teaching. So most Greek philosophy on ethics can be reduced to two primary interests. I, I didn't know this one. I knew the second one, but I did not know this one. And this is really fascinating. So if you were to read some of the, and, and by the way, these virtues as they are articulated would have happened about 500 years predominantly through before, before the time of Paul, about four or 500 BC. And so um, there are two particular interests that the Greek philosophers had when it came to this, and one was happiness. Eudaimonia is the Greek word for it, and it's not a feeling or experience, but a particular kind of life through the use of reason. For Greeks, happiness means human flourishing, a blessedness. What's that sound like? Their idea of happiness is not our idea of happiness. Happiness in our culture is pretty shallow it's a Reader's Digest form of joy. But their idea of happiness is very closely related to joy. It's very closely related to shalom. 
And the book of Philippians is, no, is called the book of joy. So Paul, in his learning, was tapping into that whole thing about happiness and peace and joy by citing these Greek virtues. All of that would have started to bubble to the top as people were reading it. Here's another interesting thing. Ultimately, Yudemo Oya is achieved in God-likeness. <laughs> How is our joy achieved? It's achieved in Christ-likeness. All this is going on in that little text of Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. The second thing that philosophers were concerned about when it came to ethics was this idea of virtue, or arete. And most Greeks believed that happiness was impossible without the rational practice of the virtues. Now again, this is by, unless, unless you're living in a cave, the idea of living rationally nowadays is pretty much gone. Reason, the ability to exercise your, your, your rationale, um, has been put very much on the back burner, particularly of, and of all places, higher education. It's what you feel. It's what you think subjectively. Objective thinking is, uh, is no longer respected or considered in the world of higher education today. So the Greeks were onto something, and what they were onto dominated how people thought in Western civilization for 2,000 years until relatively recently. The Apostle Paul was tapping into all of that. Now, why do I think Paul, what are some other reasons why I think Paul was getting at that? Well, let's look at Paul for a minute here. Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. This is what is said in Acts 22, verse 3, as recorded by Luke. The Apostle Paul was a classically trained thinker. He was a Roman citizen by birth. He had a formidable command of Greek language. He was familiar with Greek thinkers and Greek literature. There is no way that you can study Greek and not study Greek literature in that time. Just not too many years ago, what was the primary textbook in every school in the country? The Bible. Because they didn't have textbooks. So you learn to read using the Bible. You learn to write using the Bible. And that was true back then. They didn't have textbooks. They had teachers. And those teachers would teach and they would, they would cite from the classics. That's why Paul in part was, a classical, uh, was, classic, was classically educated. So anyway, that's why I think Paul was, is tapping into this whole idea of Greek philosophy as he's used it because all truth is God's truth. So in, in addition to that, Paul was invited by Greek, Greeks to speak and to teach. 
If you're an idiot, you're not going to be invited by Greeks to come into their most sacred places and be able to teach. They have to respect that you're a knowledgeable person. The book of Philippians was written to Greek citizens of Philippi. And Philippians, as I said, is known as the book of joy. And so the Apostle Paul was trying to get at all of that. So, so in essence, Paul was stating to the Philippians, the way to joy and peace is through the practice of virtue as given to us by God. This is a recalibrated life. Take that text. Buy a poster. Print it up. Put it on a card. Put a little tent on your, on your desk or on your table or whatever and consider and, and ruminate and think and, and, um, and um, uh, meditate on what each of those virtues mean for you in your life. So, if something in our life is clearly not a virtue, then it can only be a vice. So here are the eight virtues of Paul that we want to unpack for just a few minutes. The virtue of whatever is true. What he means by that is that which is without error or false, particularly as found in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, and in God's word. That's, that's our nodal point. That's where we determine what is true and what is not true. But in a more expansive way, we have to know what is true in, a, in addition to that and to be committed to what is true. There are certain biological truths that are just true. There are certain relational truths that are just true. And you have to be committed to those truths. To not be committed to those truths, to not have that virtue of that truth, is to have a vice. You're believing something that is untrue. If you believe that it's true that you have $1,000 in your bank account because you sincerely believe it, but, a, but you go out and buy a car and write a check for $25,000 because you really want it, how does that work? It doesn't work. But that's, in many respects, what we do as a culture. We have, we have made this idea of truth very malleable. And it is not. There are absolutes in life. There are universals in life. If you are born a person, a human being... No matter how much you want to believe that it's true that you're a cat, you're not a cat. And just because you sincerely believe that you're a cat and your mother believes you're a cat and that she can petition the school board to put a litter box in the girl's restroom for you, which has been done, you're not helping that person. It's not true. So, vice means not what is, a vice is not what is false or a lie. It cannot be, we cannot orient, orient our life around what is false or what is a lie. How about the virtue of what is honorable or noble? That means to be venerated because of character, worthy of respect. Believers are to 
meditate on, whether, on, on whatever is worthy of awe and adoration, the sacred as opposed to the profane. Honor has fallen on hard times in our culture. The honoring of our parents, the honoring of just authority, the honoring of people who want to live a virtuous life. What people do you know or what things in your life do you know that should be venerated but are not? Do we venerate? Do we honor those things that should be honored? Do we honor marriage? Do we honor our spouse? Do we honor the way in which our, the responsibility that we have for raising our children? I've been in places where I've worked, and, and I, I can tell you this, and, and I, I, I'm not perfect at it, but I try, that when, I do my, when I've done my work, say, in blue-collar kinds of situations in the past, I would do my work, as Paul would say, as unto the Lord. So I would try to do extra, pick up a broom, be the first person on my feet, those kinds of things. Wasn't perfect, but I would try. That was my, that was my goal. And then I would have people would say, what are you doing that for? They're not going to pay you anymore. You're making us look bad. Stop doing that. They couldn't honor the ethic of work, good work. Number three, so honor... To not have honor then, to not have the virtue of honor means to have the vice of what is profane or disrespectful. We honor too many things that are profane and disrespectful. We confuse them when they are really a vice. We confuse them and say that they are a virtue. How about the virtue of what is just or right? The believer is to think in harmony with God's divine standard of holiness. These are absolute standards that apply to everyone, everywhere, and in every way at all times. What is just? I once heard a person, an employer, say, so the company uh, gave the employees some shirts to wear. And some of the shirts didn't fit one employee, so he tried to give them to another employee. And the manager came and he saw that the one employee was giving his shirts to another employee because they fit him. And the, the, the manager took the shirts. So I'm the boss, I can do whatever I want. That left a horrible impression on both those employees. It wasn't just, it wasn't right. Do we live our lives according to what is just, what is right? Is that a high standard for us to always take the high road on what is just and what is right? If you've ever been in a room before, and let's say you're the manager, you're the boss or the leader or whatever, and, um, and there are all kinds of people in the room. And there are some people who are a little lower on the social strata and some people who are a little higher on the social strata. 
do we as leaders give the same kind of attention to the people who are on the lower part of the social strata as the people who are on the higher part of the social strata? Do we look through those people who are in the lower part of the social strata in order to get to the people who are in the higher part of the social strata? Happens all the time. It is not just. It is not right. It is disaffirming. It is a vice when we don't do that. It is corrupt or it is unfair. How about the virtue of whatever is pure? That which, is, that which is clean, faultless, and undefiled. Perfect, as in setting the standard. Not corrupt or profane. Venerable, except from every fault. Purity. Wholesomeness. Those ought to be a part of all of our lives. What is pure, what is good. So what are some things in our lives that we may struggle with when it comes to impurity? Would it be what we think, what we do, how we treat people? I suspect a lot of us are glad we don't have bubbles over top of our heads revealing what that might be. So to be impure is to practice what is defiled or unholy. How about the virtue of what is lovely? That is to say, pleasing or amiable. By implication, believers are to focus on whatever is kind or gracious. So that's considered to be lovely. But I also want to say this, that I think that also connected to that was the, the whole Greek idea of what is beautiful. I think beauty is divine. I'm very Greek in that way. I think that... that uh, that what we see is truly beautiful, really, we are informed by God about what is beautiful. Art, music, and, and honestly, today, what passes for beauty is more than just relative. It's an assault on what beauty really is. So do we, do we appreciate what is beautiful in the world in which we live? Virtue in terms of whatever is admirable, of good report, that which is highly regarded or thought of or thought well of. It refers to what is generally considered to be reputable in the world, such as kindness, courtesy, and respect for others. So we're so much better at tearing people down than we are building them up. We're so much better at gossiping uh, about others than about saying good things about people and affirming them. And so when we, and, and really there's, there's, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why we do, but one of the dominant reasons why we do this because it's when we tear another person down, we seem to look better by comparison. But is it a regular part of our language and our conversation to, to provide a good report about people who do good things? Can we affirm people in our lives that maybe we know with other people and say, I really appreciate that about that person. They are so good at what it is that they do. Who would not want to be around a person who can always find something good to say about something else? 
remember when we were when we were growing up for most of us if you can't say anything good about a person what don't say it that's exactly right okay see we were taught virtue in that regard all right um so not the vice of what is slanderous or debased and by the way i mean i just and it's hard, isn't it? You'll hear somebody say something about somebody else, and they'll look at you like they want you to join in. And when you choose not to join in, then you clearly don't agree, and then you're kind of afraid of what they might think of you because you didn't join in. But sometimes you just have to be really disciplined and say, nothing. And then when you can say it the right way, you just say, well, maybe it was because of this, that's the reason why they did that. Or I don't think they would think it, you know, they would, they would really do it in that kind of a way. I mean, sometimes people need to be defended. Virtue in terms of what is excellent. A virtuous course of thought, feeling, and action, as in outstanding and exceptional moral and ethical character. Do we consider, our, do we con do we, is it, a, is it a regular part of how we live our life to commit ourselves to excellence in all that we do? Or do we just get by? Whatever we do, is it done with excellence? I mean, uh, you, you've, you've, heard this, you've heard the statement, good enough for government work. You know, did you ever hear that before, you know, when somebody does something, right? Um, and what that basically means is it really doesn't have to be done real well, just enough to get by. But that's not what the Lord calls us to. He calls us to do, to be excellent in all that we do. And if we are excellent in all that we do, we immediately become visible, and now, I will say this, there are some people who do excellent things because they are insecure. So they're afraid of criticism. So they want to control everything. But the person who is free from that and who simply wants to do something excellent because it brings them and gives them joy, because they want to be faithful to God in that way, that is a person that separates themselves from the rest of the world. How about virtue in terms of what is worthy of praise? So uh, do we praise the good things that should be praised? Or do we praise those things which should not be praised? They should not be reinforced. How do we do that? Is it clear to us what should be uh, accommodated or commended and praise and things that should not. And it doesn't always mean if somebody does something that should not be praised that, that it's our bound duty to say it should not be praised. But again, we separate ourselves from the rest of the world when we affirm and praise things that really should be praised. And we can do that. We can give away power when we do that. And that's something the world doesn't always understand. So then the Apostle Paul goes on to say, think on these things. Dwell, ponder, ruminate, meditate on them. 
Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice to make into a habit, to bring to completion, so that you can enter in and be a part of God's shalom and the joy. And so the Apostle Paul included these virtues because it had everything to do with those believers being Greek and him speaking to them in their language, in their culture, and raising those things that they would have known very well so that they could have the joy and the peace that they really wanted in Christ. Living a life of virtue is living a, a recalibrated life. So I just would strongly encourage all of us to take this wonderful text that the Apostle Paul gives. Joy is a recalibration of our faith. Peace is a recalibration of our faith. Those things are possible when we practice the virtues that God has called us to practice.